You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This one is very, very interesting. We got into some territory that I genuinely thought would never be discussed on this podcast. It was pretty heavy and pretty freaky, honestly, so I won't spoil it. I think hearing it straight from the horse's mouth is best in this circumstance. And today I'm talking to Al Levy from URM, the Unstoppable Recording Machine. You've probably heard about this if you are at all interested in recording metal. I'm sure you've came across some of his content in the past. He's a really great dude. It was really, really interesting to dive into his story. I've been wanting to get him on for a very long time, so I'm excited that that finally has happened. I want to get into this as quickly as possible, but real quick, I want to let you all know that right now I am probably in Fort Wayne, Indiana, as you listen to this. If you're listening to this the week that it's dropped, it is GearFest time. So stay tuned to the Tone Mob socials to see some behind the scenes, see some of the stuff I'm getting to check out, and little previews here and there of the various gear I will be checking out from a ton of manufacturers there at GearFest. I'm actually very, very excited. I'm going to be meeting up with a lot of fellow content creator friends. I'm going to be meeting up with people that are way out of my league musically, so that'll be interesting, which uh, I guess that's pretty much everyone that comes on this podcast, so I should be used to that by now. But uh, if you're trying to get a hold of me, I might be a little bit more difficult to reach this week than normal, just so you're aware. I will be there at GearFest, and I will be trying to catch and make and whatever as much content as I possibly can for you all. I want to make hay while the sun's shining and just get it out there for you. So if you reach out and you don't get a hold of me right away, that is where I am. So yes, sorry about that in advance, but that's just what's going on. All right, let's let's move on. Let's get onto this podcast with Al. I think you're really going to like it. Let's rock and roll. Here we go. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Weiland. With me today, I have Al Levy from URM. What's going on, dude? How are you? Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I'm very excited to be here, and I already told you this off, off the air, but right up, right up top for anybody that's watching this in the future, I'm not wearing these Ray-Bans because <laughs> I'm Captain Cool Guy and trying to do some sort of a Fonzie flex over here. Uh, the old uh, grinder eye injury is creeping up on me today. So this is making my life a little bit easier. So listeners know all about that, but uh, <laughs> we won't go into that story. It's kind of gross. Uh, <laughs> now now you have my curiosity peaked. I had a grinder explode and go into my eyeball like uh, in 2010 or 11, somewhere in the Grinder like machinery? Yeah, like a cutoff wheel. I was, oh uh, my God. The wheel just exploded. And uh, yeah, it was a really, a really bad day. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I'm cu- what well, I'm curious uh did it obviously it hurt but like in the moment did you feel it 
it felt like I thought for a moment that like somebody was swinging a sledgehammer and somehow you know back swung and hit me. It felt like I had yeah. been hit super super hard. I was su- really confused, but it didn't like immediately hurt because I went into shock. So got it. But yeah, that it was that it was confusing later. though. Yeah, well, I was just like, no, no one's around me. Who hit me with a hammer? That's what I literally thought. Yeah. So oh, man, that's traumatic. Sorry. Yeah, it was a bad. It was a bad time, but you know, it could have been worse. So well, I'll yeah. just go with that. <laughs> it def- could always be worse. It could always be worse. Uh, but hey, dude, I'm excited to have you here. I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. I've listened to your show you know, off and on for several years. So this is really cool for me, and I really like what you're doing. But for my guests who, or my my listeners rather, who are not as familiar, let's get into your backstory. When did you? get into music and how did it lead down this really crazy career that you've had? Yeah. uh, When you're about to say, tell them what you do, I was like, where do I begin? Uh, I I relate. Don't worry. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it is kind of a crazy path. Um, I just got into music from super, super early. My dad's a symphony conductor. And so music was just around always. Uh, And, I started playing violin and piano when I was three, probably because I wanted to do what my dad did. So it was just, there There was no choice in the matter. It was just downloaded in from birth, mm-hmm. I think. So I've always done music. That's super cool. So did you, was your family real supportive when you started getting into heavier stuff? No, um, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. Um, they They became supportive over time, but no, absolutely not. You got to understand my family, first of all, they're not American. They, they became citizens like only a few years before I became a teenager. And they, they came from cultures where metal was just not, not a thing. So, and rock, my mom is from Mexico. Things have changed now. My dad's from Israel. Mom's from Mexico. And they just kind of had no concept of anything besides like, you know, the Beatles or classical music, basically, Mm -hmm. or Frank Sinatra, stuff like that. Like the idea of like American or European metal or any of that stuff was just so foreign to them. And uh, the kind of people that are in it uh, or were in it at the time, like it was just culture shock and they didn't want me to have anything to do with that back then and they just thought that it was noise uh, and i guess technically speaking metal is noise uh, <laughs> but that that's a that's Sym- a, that's symphonies a, are noise technically speaking yeah so yeah, yeah. yeah but the the amount of distortion like I, I think that mixing metal is basically carving noise well but that's a <laughs> i think you're right about that <laughs> different topic um yeah they thought that it was noise uh and they thought that it was a bad influence for me to be around and so, no, they were not into it at all. Like when I said I wanted to play guitar, they got me a classical guitar and uh, basically put up a bunch of obstacles, which I think is a great thing in the end because I had to buy, besides that classical guitar, I had to buy all my own guitars. I had to find, uh, I had to find ways to save up money or mm-hmm. make money as a teenager for literally every piece of gear, every guitar. And so it really, it really proved to me, I guess, or proved to them too, that I really wanted it. And, uh, I really think that having things given to you 
hurts, especially in your formative years. Uh, I'm not saying that you should just, uh, you, you should deprive your kids of good things just to teach them a lesson. But if they're passionate about something, making them work for it is a real good thing. It mm -hmm. was for me uh, because I developed this independence about it that was completely independent from any sort of family support. Later, they did start supporting me. But by then, I already had that work ethic established um, and I guess determination to make it happen. So, no, they didn't support it, and I'm glad they didn't. Was it one of those things where they started supporting you once they realized this was an actual avenue that could work or was it more just your determination that forced them to start i guess he's gonna do it anyway so we better be here for him what it was or some combination or what do you think turned their yeah made him turn the corner yeah it was basically i mean my parents are cool people it's not like they wanted to have a bad relationship with me it's just after a while uh they i think they realized i'm not stopping and also, like I did things that brought my dad into the fold. Like I found a way to hook him up with Ingve when I was like 17. And so like oh, wow. <laughs> him starting to understand that, oh wait, it is real music and there are real musicians in this. Um, I think that, that that helped them gradually start to come around. And of course, getting a record deal helped a lot. Sure. Yeah. So once things started to get more serious as in terms of like the career side of it. Um, as in I had stuff to show for it. Right. I think they, they start, they, that was it. Also before the record deal happened, I was paying for rent, uh, based off of, um, from recording bands. So, and they were mostly metal bands. So I think somewhere around the age of 22, 23, they started to chill about it because mm -hmm. yeah i mean i was paying rent and also uh the band was getting serious and then yeah once the record deal happened it was all skepticism gone basically nice nice yeah yeah it's i totally understand you know my parents were always supportive of me and they put up with a lot of things that they didn't have to put up with musically uh and, but at the same time you know they they definitely had their concerns when I first started getting into heavier things because it was so foreign to them you know like why why are they screaming like that like what's what's going on why I don't understand any of this you know and so from that perspective it's just kind of like are you okay yeah <laughs> like why, why are you into these things they're so that are so abrasive and I do understand yep. that and I think it's I important do. to note also that metal has changed a lot so I don't know what era you were a teenager in. I was a teenager in the 90s. And mm -hmm. metal, it was a different crowd. Um, like if you went to any death metal show in the 90s, about a quarter of that crowd would be neo-Nazis. And then another mm -hmm. quarter of that crowd would be Sharps, who, uh, for people who don't know, they're the non-racist skinheads. But, you know, they switched sides a lot. Just because they said they were non-racist skinheads didn't mean didn't mean like they're just basically two gangs and they would have their gang warfare at these shows and mm -hmm. show it was a very different sort of thing like my metalhead friends were kids that were constantly doing 
things like trying to set their school on fire and uh, just, I guess, misfits, basically. So I understand why my parents didn't want me hanging out around that. I think that metal culture now is very, very different. It's a lot safer. And there's still that element, but it's not the dominant element anymore. So, yeah, I think that they definitely were wondering if there was something wrong with me or if I'm getting in with a terrible crowd or, and those are very valid concerns in the nineties, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Yeah. I was more in the early two thousands, uh, where things really started. I think like the commercialization was really yes. happening then. And, uh, there was still elements of some of the things you're talking about, but it was, so, and I'm in Portland, so it's a little bit different than some of the other areas where, like, the sharp mentality was a lot more prevalent here by the time I got into it than the other side of it. Um, in fact, it was like kind of a point of pride that there wasn't a lot of that in this town, but it still existed, you know. And that was more in the, I guess, if you want to get start dividing things up into subcategories, it was more in the hardcore side than in to the more uh metal sides quote unquote at least here but it was definitely a i saw that transition basically is and that's right where i came in i saw some of the the older people who were really sometimes scary people oh, yeah. meshed with us suburban kids like coming in and like being like what's up guys hi how you doing you know yeah there so. there was a scary a legitimately scary element in metal back then and so when you hear these older musicians saying the danger is gone and they and yeah i'm sure you've seen on blabbermouth that like some musician from a band that's like in their 50s or something uh who were big in the 90s are saying that the danger is gone for metal or whatever i think that's what they're referring to and they're right it it is gone but that's not a bad thing in my opinion no it's a good thing to not worry about getting stabbed at a show or yes. getting jumped <laughs> by eight Nazis or something like that's, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that that's not really a part of things anymore. Mm-hmm. What part of the, the country were you in when you were experiencing this stuff? Atlanta. Atlanta. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, I wonder, I, cause I have no, I, there's no way to really know, but I wonder how different just the regional scenes were too. Uh, time frames kind of disregarded. I wonder how, how different that really was. No clue, but I can tell you that uh, my very first tour ever was in 2003 where I filled in for a black metal band. Um, there was a black metal band from Atlanta and they lost a guitar player because he was running from the FBI uh <laughs> yeah black metal man uh sounds, and, sounds about right yeah and i didn't know anything about them but you know I, i'm a black metal fan always was but yeah i never got into I, I never got into it past like i like the music and so i didn't know anything about the people in this band i had never heard the band before i just heard there's this band they're going on a european tour uh 2003 again um and they need a guitar player do you want to try out okay so i tried out and i got the gig and i went to europe with them and 
so many Nazis. And this was in the 2000s already. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was almost nothing but Nazis in that crowd. So I think in some places it took longer for that to die out. I, I don't know if it's still there at all nowadays, like, but... I feel like you probably would have to seek it out. You'd, I, I think, think you you'd would... have to seek it out. Yep. It's been mostly ostracized. Good. Rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. 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 But that was, that, that was quite the shocker getting there. And then suddenly this, uh, this Jewish kid from Atlanta with a classical music background being, uh, <laughs> being in that environment around those people. Not cool. I was going to say that had to be particularly jarring for you especially not really knowing that that was what you were about to experience and be like, hi, I'm, I'm Jewish. <laughs> what are you guys doing? Jarring like, and dangerous. Yeah. Uh, Cause I know that at one point uh, they were going to stab me, but that one of the guitar players, the other guitar player in the band I was in said that if anybody touches me, he's leaving the tour also. And the band members wanted to stab you. No. And from one of the other bands. Oh, gotcha. Because yeah. they found out you were Jewish. Yeah. So like there was this German band on the, on the tour. Yeah. So, mm. um, yeah, the guitar player that was in the band I was in and I'm not naming any names. Yeah. He said if, and I think he was subbing for another band as well. He said, basically, yeah, if anybody touches him, I'm leaving. So that was my protection basically. Did you know that at the time or did you find that out later? Um, and I, I don't remember exactly if I found that out later or not, but I can tell you it because it's so long ago. I the vibe was so bad that mm-hmm. I probably it was anticipating it. Like I was on guard at all times. Like I never went to sleep around any of them and was uh like I was constantly taking measures to make sure that no one could like come up behind me or anything, anything like that. Like it, I was on, I was in fight or flight for about two weeks straight, basically. That's terrifying. <laughs> That's the scariest thing <laughs> I've heard ever. Probably yeah, it was not podcast. cool. Wow. That is not what I expected to go down. That is in as intense as anything I've ever heard. That's wild. Well, I'm glad you're okay. That would have sucked. That's- yeah, it would have sucked. At the, the, at the tour manager's apartment, we stopped there at the very end, like for the last gig happened to be in the town he lives in. And there was a revolver in his, in his uh, bedroom. It just happened to be a loaded revolver hanging out in his bedroom. And I did get it pointed at me in a joking Jeez. fashion, but, uh, but yeah, like it was a terrifying tour and it really, it really um, helped me understand that, if I could make it through that, I can make it through just about anything. Mm-hmm. And it also made me understand that the Nazi thing is real. It, mm-hmm. it is, it's absolutely real. And, uh, and it is what it is. Uh, I can, I can survive in music if I could survive. That's why I did it. Actually. I wanted to know if I was capable of handling a tour. So mm-hmm. that's why I said yes, without, knowing anything about what I was getting myself into. It was just, I've been wanting to do this for so long. Like I was 22, 23 and hadn't toured yet. And this opportunity came up for a European tour. So it was like, why would I not do this? This is everything I've been working towards. 
And uh, lo and behold, <laughs> lots of reasons for why I probably shouldn't have done it. <clears throat> yeah, you didn't know that you were you were going to test yourself by going on tour, but you didn't know that it was going to be like the ultimate test <laughs> of no. whether you wanted to do this or not. Yeah, definitely not. Had no idea. That's wild. That is insane. So you always wanted to do this. And obviously you talked about when you got signed, that was a turning point for your family. Did you have any particular moments where it felt like I've made it or I've gotten to the point where I want to be, or is it just a continuing climb up Mount Everest for you? Never, never, man. It's always felt like a house of cards. Um, I'm friends with someone who's in, you know, one of the biggest bands in history, like, and it's relevant. I'm not going to say who, let's just say he's in one of the most legendary uh, rock metal bands of all time. And he tells me that he feels like it could all disappear tomorrow, that it's all built on a house of cards. And if he feels that way, the rest of us should absolutely always feel that way. <laughs> and um, I have never let myself get comfortable. I, I think that's a bad idea, man. I've seen people who do, and mm -hmm. it never ends well for them. I had this partner once who remember said, and I quote, I don't need to work hard. I made it. And, uh, and their career kind of faltered a lot. And not because he said that, but it's that attitude. Um, mm -hmm. On the other on the flip side, uh, some of the very best musicians I know, for instance, like uh, Jeff Loomis, for instance, um, I don't know about right this moment, but I know that he still gets guitar lessons. Now, and wow. on the outside, people might think, Jeff Loomis, guitar lessons, why? Like who would even teach god. him, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but point is, why do you think he's a guitar god? It's because he's always trying to get better. He has spent his entire career and his entire life trying to always get better, never getting comfortable with where he's at. So, and I, and I know several people like that. Like the best people I know are not comfortable with their position. And then the people I know who have gotten comfortable felt like they've made it. Uh, it doesn't go well for them. So I never let myself get comfortable ever. Mm -hmm. I think that is really good advice. And I think that is key to making it in, especially in something like music that's so competitive. And I don't mean competitive in the way, in the way that sports is competitive where oh, I'm trying to literally beat the other team or, you know, set a world record or something, but it's competitive in that there are so many people who want to be a part of it, who want to do it. There's so much supply and, and there's only so much demand. So generally speaking with very few exceptions, the people who put in the most work are the ones that end up being able to carve out a career and it has to stay consistent. You're not going to stay in front of people. You're not going to stay top of mind if you aren't doing things to try to ensure that that's the case. And there are a variety of ways to do that. But I think consistency is the most important thing, no matter what you're trying to do in any creative endeavor. So that's important. Like that's it, when you said that your partner said that I don't have to work hard. I've made it. It's like hard for me to wrap my mind around such like a that, red flag. It, it sounds dangerous, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of the moment I knew <laughs> the, the moment I knew, uh, this was not going to work out between us. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. That's, uh, 
that's a strange feeling to have had too, right? Because you you thought something else of the person or you wouldn't have gotten a business with them in the first correct, place, right? Correct. And then you hear that and it's like, whoa, are you're are you kidding right now? <laughs> like, is that a serious like, like is that a joke? Like, mm-hmm. um, are are you for real? Yeah, like that. The thing is, um, everybody says stupid from time to time. So I think it's important to be able to tell the difference between a red flag and just someone saying stupid. Yeah. But something like that is, uh, if they're not just kidding, that is a huge red flag. I think you can tell the difference, generally yeah. speaking. When yeah, someone's definitely. Like, if I said that to my business partner, like he would he would just laugh at me because he knows that's not real. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's important to know when it's a joke mm -hmm. and when it's not. But it's freaky when something that sounds like it should be a joke isn't, and this is a person that you depend on for one thing or another. absolutely. That's one of the toughest things about music, actually, the depend on part is, uh, is one of the scariest things, and everyone in music has to deal with this, is that you do depend on a lot of other people uh, and other people can sink your ship very, very quickly if you're not careful about it. Like, you know, a band is, no matter how big they are, if one member does something that can ruin it for everybody, uh, there's lots of, lots of cases in music where your future is directly tied to somebody else and what they, what they do. So, Stuff like that, a red flag like that is really, really serious. If you're serious about your career and it continuing, that kind of stuff can't be taken lightly um, mm-hmm. it, because you that is the ship you're on, basically. Yeah. Hi, I'm Vincent, and I'm here to talk about the Merit X. My dad's always going on and on about how cool Maris is. He really went off on one about the Mercury X the other day. He said something about a 4,800 hertz sample rate and 99 preset locations in 33 banks and something along the lines of the most advanced reverb pedal ever devised by man? That's all true, but I only care about one thing. This pedal sounds sick. So make sure you check out the Mercury X and all the other fine products at Maris.us, as well as fine retailers worldwide. All right, Dad, now can I have my Pocky? How exactly do artists get their music on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, Tidal, all these services? How in the world... Do you get your music there? Well, in the past, you had to use something called a record label. But these days, you can use DistroKid. DistroKid is the absolute easiest way to get your music up on streaming services. And it's the most affordable way to do so. Not only do plans start at $22.99 for the entire year, that's less than 2 bucks a month, DistroKid also does not take a cut of your streaming revenue, unlike some other services out there. Even better if you sign up by going to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. That's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. One more time, that's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. 
you'll get 30% off. That's right, 30% off their already extremely reasonable prices. So go to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid and get your music out there. Yeah, and that could be anything from something more like what we're talking about here where somebody getting complacent or a red flag could be like, wow, that guy's into some stuff he shouldn't be into. Yes. And and I know he's not joking about it. I got to pay attention to this and, you know, try to distance myself from it. And that can be really difficult depending on what stage of your career you're at. You know, like you said, it, a band is completely dependent on each other especially if it's the primary songwriter or the front person or something that's like drawing the people in, you know, they, they do something terrible and that's it, you know, and it's a, it's good that people are held accountable for being terrible people, but it does make it an even riskier endeavor to pursue, you know, being in a band these days. It's a, you, you gotta be able to have surround yourself with good people. And I think that's the main takeaway here. Yeah. Uh, you can become collateral damage. So surround yourself with good people, but also, um, you know, also be working on your own level constantly and never getting complacent so that if something does happen, you know, that house of cards does tumble down. Uh, you have what you need to, in order to be able to keep moving. Mm -hmm. Yep. I love that. So, when did you start? So you talked about you were recording bands, you know, even before the record deal. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, I don't know, it's hard for me to gauge. I know you more from the recording side than your own music, but I know a lot of people would say the opposite. What do you, how do you view yourself? Um, I, I musician first, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason that I learned how to record was in order to record my own music because mm -hmm. nobody around me uh, knew how to record metal. And so mm -hmm. there were no options. And much like lots of producers in metal from my generation, uh, a lot of us started because there, was, there were no options. Like you could go to some local studio, like there's the $1,200 a day studio like the really nice one where you could maybe afford uh like three off hour nights right. and you'd get some engineer that doesn't know anything about metal and come out sounding like total uh or a bunch of other studios in town that are just garbage where no one understands metal is very very rare that there is ever anywhere that understood metal um so a lot of people from my generation just started recording kind of out of necessity. And for me, so for me, it was always necessity. And I had this philosophy that whatever I do as plan B, it's got to feed plan A. Like mm -hmm. I can't ever have a plan B, like that safety net be something outside of, outside of the realm, uh, at least for me, uh, because I, my brain doesn't work that way. Everything has to go towards the big picture. Mm -hmm. And so in with recording, A, I could record my own music. B, I could record other bands. So I could network with other bands uh, for my own band. And then with my own band, I could network with other bands for the studio. So everything kind of fed everything. And it, it made a lot of sense. So 
I started recording, um, you know, about the year 2000, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. And within a few years I was, you know, I was recording local bands and paying, paying rent off of it, but I never wanted to be like some big producer or anything like that. And, uh, as I went further up the food chain, I guess, and started working with great producers, like I, I became an all right engineer and did work on some cool records and did do some stuff, but I have never had the passion for it that like the Will Putneys of the world have Mm -hmm. like that is what they do. And it's, that's never been it for me. For me, recording is always a utility. It was always something, something to help get the, the bigger picture done. Um, also I've always admired the Mike Patton types, of the, the, those types that are always doing lots of things. Like, you know, they have like that main band, you know about, but then it also runs a record label and then also composes soundtracks and is also like guesting on a bunch and then doing solo records. And like, I always saw myself as one of those types that, uh, I have my guitar playing, I have my own band and it's sick, but, uh, but I also, I can produce records. I can start companies. I can, a podcast, like, uh, I mean, podcasts didn't exist back in the day, right? but like the goal was always to be prolific and to do lots of things, lots of awesome things and to do stuff that was bigger than myself and make an impact. It was never just about being a guitar player in a band, even though that is part of it. So, um, it just so happens that the stuff I did with recording, uh, and then subsequently URM ended up being the biggest thing I've ever done. It became, it was bigger and it is bigger than my own music. So a lot of people know me just for that and are surprised to find out that, uh, that like I'm in a band and that the band <laughs> has been a sign band for a long ass time. A long time. Yeah. yeah. Um, even with the hiatus, like, um, you know, uh, people are surprised to find that out if they know me via URM, but that's okay. That makes sense. Cause, um, URM is, first of all, it's the most recent thing. Um, if you look at the past 10 years, it's also the biggest thing I've done. So, but still it all fits that bigger picture of that. I have always seen myself as someone that does lots of things and is like, uh, more entre- entrepreneurial, I guess. Like I like to get, I like to make things happen in this world basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I totally relate to that. It's, I don't understand how to do one thing. I don't really have that bone in my body. I mean, I can focus on one thing at a time and I'm not a multitasker, but I mean, Mm -hmm. only having one project at any given time, there's going to be moments where things are paused for some reason. I don't mean pauses and they're not moving forward, but you know, maybe you're waiting for you know, a master to come back or you're waiting for something where you're waiting for any number of little things that could be on the horizon, waiting for an engineer to get done with a part so you can add it to the machine and find out if it works or not. There's always periods where there's downtime and I don't really understand how not to fill that downtime. It's not a, it's not a bone that I have in my body. So yeah, (laughs) that's, I I get it. it. I mean, some people though are, are like that. Like, singular focus and that can work too it can that's it can. where vir- that's the uh the virtuosos of this world 
um, that's basically the effect of putting like 95% of your energy into this one thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, like I find that I work really well with those types. So um, like it's like there's a good yin yang thing happening. When, sure. Like when I work with those types, I, I appreciate them a lot. Uh, so I'm not one of them, but I work really well with them. It sometimes is nice, especially somebody that's in a production type of role or managing type of role to be able to sit back and see all of the virtuosos in the various fields and be able to help position them into the right place to be able to execute whatever task everybody's coming together for. It takes somebody that can kind of see all the moving parts. And if you're down in the trenches getting really good at, you know, soloing or insert whatever it is, any one individual task, it can be harder to see the big picture. So it really does take all types. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. As a fellow podcaster, I want to get into how you started that. And I want to hear about URM, but on the podcast side, I think we've been doing this roughly about the same time. How did you, you know, come to enjoy the medium enough to record almost 400 episodes that you've done now? That's with URM. The Riff Heart podcast is like mm -hmm. at 120. Um, wow. So they, when I was transitioning into, uh, like away from producing bands, Mm -hmm. which was happening gradually. Uh, the, I started doing stuff for Creative Live. Like I started making courses for Creative Live in mm -hmm. like 2013. And when I started doing stuff for Creative Live, uh, it kind of just took off immediately, which was a big surprise because I thought online education was cheesy and I was just doing this as a favor to my friend Finn because mm -hmm. Finn McKenty from Punk Rock MBA, uh, he's now director of operations at URM. But back in those days, he was working for Creative Live and he was pitching them on starting an audio channel because they had like photography and business and stuff. Creative Live is this uh, online education company, one of the OGs. And yep. uh, I helped him put the pitch together uh to, for the higher ups to create the audio channel. And, um, you know, I was the first producer he had on there and like it was, I didn't have a problem putting the pitch together with him, but the, uh, the going on there and giving some education was not, not high on my list of things I wanted to do, mm -hmm. but I did it and it went great. It went awesome. And it took off immediately and from that point on, it was just, I was starting to realize that maybe there's something to me talking about stuff and explaining stuff to people that resonates well with people. And it just kind of made sense that if I'm going in that direction, that podcasting is a really good, um, I guess, parallel thing to do. It's not, you can't get as detailed about technical how-to in a podcast, but you can have conversations with people that might not be appropriate for a tutorial or whatever um, because it's not just about, you know, a music career and getting great at music um, and doing it over a long period of time. It's not just about being good at music. It's there's this whole mindset 
thought process, like psychological aspect that goes into surviving. Mm-hmm. It goes into your relationships. It goes into how you make the decisions that you make. Um, it goes into how you approach actually working on the art itself. Like there's the video side of it is just not, or in those days was just not appropriate. Like you couldn't go into those topics, especially not with creative live because creative live was operating under union rules. And so we had a very, very specific, uh, format that we had to follow. Oh, so interesting. I, what yeah, so union? I, I don't know. Whatever oh, union. <laughs> whatever union? Yeah. Huh, I, I didn't even I, know that was I don't a thing know. for that type of stuff. That's crazy. Well, I think that the crews were... Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So gotcha. Um, there were rules. There were very specific rules. And they had an intense legal department. It's just we had to stick within certain boundaries. And um, it just made sense to try to have these conversations because I already knew that I was really good at conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started podcasting actually with Finn before, before the URM podcast. Started podcasting with Finn. We did a few. And then at some point I saw Joey Sturgis. I didn't know him. He was just that metalcore producer guy. I saw that he made a post saying that he was going to put together an audio school online. And I was already planning it out URM. Like I was going to do it and I did not want to be competing with Joey. So, uh, (laughs) I don't blame you. No, definitely not. So I just hit him up cold and said like, Hey, you and I are going to be doing the same thing. Like you say you're doing an audio school. I'm doing an audio school. Maybe it's best. We don't compete. Why don't we talk about joining forces and mm-hmm. uh he flew down uh based off of those dms he just flew down uh a few weeks later and we met and talked and decided we were going to do urm together and the first thing we did was start a podcast because that was something we could do right then and there mm-hmm. so that that was that was it that's why i started gotcha yeah like you had all the stuff it was a easy like it's not easy to make it successful, but it was easy to get started, relatively speaking, especially with you two at the at the helm there. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, and then he said, "I know this dude. I have a friend named Joel. He's good at talking. We should we should bring him in." So, um, so we did, and he is good at talking. So <laughs> it would just wasn't difficult to do because between the three of us, the conversations were super easy, and we're we're all killers. Like when we want something the three of us go for it like really hard. Sorry for swearing, but we, we go for it. And so we went for it, like utilizing our network, like trying to make really great episodes. And, uh, it all kind of just went from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, the podcasting is a, it's my favorite thing that I get to do because I get to sit down and have a real conversation with people like yourself in this world where everything's so condensed to 15 second sound bites and everyone's distracted by phones and screens and what notifications and whatever else is going on. This is a, I've told people on the show many times, it's an excuse to get to sit down and talk to people that otherwise I'd have no business talking to. (laughs) And I actually get to have really good conversations with them where we're, you know, it's through a screen oftentimes, but, uh, it's still, 
a really intentional conversation and I get a lot out of it. I think that it's a, it's a, it's become a, um, a networking tool that I didn't expect it to. I love talking to people and I love meeting new people, but actually being able to hit people up out of the blue and be like, Hey, insert person here, you know, that I really admire. You want to come talk to me for no reason? You know, because if it was like for no reason, they'd probably be like, no. But if you're like, can we record it and put it on the Internet? They're like, yes. <laughs> well, but then there is a reason. And mm-hmm. uh, that that's exactly it, too, is uh, um, I, there's no other way that I'm going to get still some of those people I talk to to just give me two hours of their time. Mm-hmm. Like, why? My time is valuable. Like, mm-hmm. I, they it's just not going to happen. And so it's, it's a phenomenal networking tool. And then once we actually, once we got to the point where we actually started the online school side of it, uh, which was nine months into the podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, it became even more important because that was how I was networking with our future nail the mix instructors that, right. You know, if I didn't already know them, that that's how I got to know them. Mm-hmm. Super cool. Well, speaking of things that you're working on, we got a big thing that we're going to be in trouble if we don't talk about. So uh, <laughs> I'll let you tell that story. What's coming up? Uh, it's actually as this podcast release, it'll be it'll be right during the time frame people need to know about it. So I'll let you tell yeah. that whole situation. So we just put out this course called "How It's Done" with Jens Bogren. And Ishan, the the legendary Ishan. Mm-hmm. And uh, just before anything, I'll just say the URL is nailthemix.com slash Yen's course. Now, that'll be in it, the show notes, everybody. Easy yeah, to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go there. But what it is, is like, I like to say that it's the most comprehensive production course ever made. And I know, I know that it is because I've seen what's out there. And we've previously made the most comprehensive production courses ever made, but this is more comprehensive than anything we've ever done. And what's really, really awesome about it is if you go on Spotify and you look up Ishan and you see the Fascination Street Sessions EP. So he wrote that specifically for this course. And what the course is, is we went to Sweden and we filmed the production process of that Ishan EP start to finish literally every single step of the way. And I mean, starting with pre-production all the way through to mastering. And what was really, really great about it is Ishan's an incredible musician. He's absolutely incredible and really was a partner in this whole thing. Like he's kind of a music dork like the rest of us. And so (laughs) he thought that this was an awesome thing to do. uh, And he wanted the opportunity to have Jens produce him and, to try out all these incredible instruments like, you know, organs and Mellotrons and just all this, all this interesting stuff. So he was all in on doing it. And then Jens Bogren, you know, he's, uh, in my opinion, if you were to list the most influential metal producers of all time, like if you were to make a list of them, if you left out Jens, that list would be incomplete. I think that, the sound of especially European metal, he's kind of helped define it. You know, worked with bands like Opeth, Dimu Borgir, Arch Enemy, Amon Marth, 
uh, I mean, list goes on and on and on. And I think he's one of the very, very best of all time. And he has, he is so incredibly meticulous in his process. And we basically captured everything and Mm -hmm. he's a great instructor too. So it's not, it's not just like one of those, um, you know, in the studio documentaries where it's boring or something like that. (laughs) Like it's an actual course. It's an actual course. Uh, we're basically, uh, we're showing you exactly how he does it like every step of the way, which is why it's 35 hours long. Um, That's so great. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it. it is super exhaustive. I mean, literally every step of the way. And the thing about it is, and this is the kind of thing that in the early 2000s, when I was trying to become a producer, I would have sold off my family for this. Like, this is mm-hmm. kind of info that was just not out there. And uh, even though there's a lot of stuff on YouTube and there are other recording courses, I've never seen anything that even comes close to this level of uh, detail with an artist that's this good. Like, right. it, just, it just has not existed until now. So I think getting to see how two of the very best of all time create what they create in a format that you can actually learn from, not just spectate is what's uh, is what's so cool about it. Really. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a really cool opportunity for people like to get this kind of behind the scenes peak has never really been done before. And I appreciate you guys being really ambitious with this because it's a very special thing that you're letting people be a part of. I mean, starting with pre-production, even that's not something that, a lot of people even understand what that means. And it can mean different things to different projects and different people. But getting to see, like you said, some of the very best to ever do it and how they're going to approach this is is really cool. So when people go there, it's not just the course, though. There's some other things that come along with this, uh, at least to my understanding. There's a lot of extra stuff, too, that you are including yeah. that was kind of mind-blowing. We are brought to you today by Sweetwater, specifically the Gear Exchange. You may have heard about this. This is a place where you can go to buy and sell your used gear. Maybe you got a pedal over there that's just kind of collecting dust. Maybe there's something you've been eyeing from the Sweetwater catalog. Well, right now is a great time to turn that unused gear into something you're actually going to use. Even better, if you sell on the Gear Exchange, you can keep 100% of the sale as long as you choose a Sweetwater gift card as your payout method. That is not too shabby, because let's be honest, most of this buying and selling we do is just to fund new gear purchases, and that is a great way to reach a wide variety of customers and keep 100% in your pocket, or rather, on your pedal board. So go check out the Sweetwater Gear Exchange and turn that unused gear into something that's actually going to help you write that next huge riff. Hello there. I'd like to introduce you to your new best friend, the Chase Bliss Audio Lossy. Lossy is a collaboration between Chase Bliss and Goodhertz. It's meant to give you some control over those weird digital artifacts that come with very compressed audio. You're hearing it right now. 
the changes that are taking place are strictly coming from my plane dynamics. I'm just interacting with the pedal and letting it do its thing. And some true stereo goodness. If you'd like some more details about Lossy, I invite you to head over to chaseflintsaudio.com. Gonna like what you find. Yeah, so well, let me just say about the pre-production. Something that's really, really awesome is getting to see how, uh, first of all, how they craft the song, mm -hmm. meaning like how they fix it up. Like, you know, because Ishan comes in with a demo version of the song. That's not what the song ends up as. And so lots of stuff gets cut. And there's stuff that gets cut or rearrange that is already extraordinary. That's the thing. It's like, there's nothing in the original demo that's not awesome. However, if it didn't make the song better, they readily discarded it. And what's cool is seeing how they communicate about it. Mm -hmm. Because that's where so many musicians and producers just kind of fail is in, like, you know, you get producers who don't know how to give feedback without... Uh, without being assholes about it. You have um, musicians who don't know how to take feedback without get it, taking it personally. Or on the other hand, they don't know how to say no to an idea because they don't want to offend the person. And so this whole like feedback thing uh, is really, really, really tough. And so seeing what it's like when these professionals are taking, they are like either holding their ground or uh suggesting cutting something up or deleting something and going with it and like actually making it better through those difficult decisions it's great to have a model for how that can actually go well because i know that it's a sore spot for so many people who you know they're used to giving a suggestion and someone gets mad mm -hmm. or they're used to giving suggestions and they get ignored or they're afraid to like they're afraid to say they don't like an idea because someone might get mad at them or whatever. There's all these weird relationship dynamics. And it's really helpful, I think, to see, oh, th this is how this is how pros do it. So about the extras, yeah. So there's all kinds of stuff. So first of all, we are giving people the the raw Ishan multi-tracks. So um, meaning like all of the tracks in the song um, and not pre-mixed stems like they're raw so what's cool about that is your ability to follow along it's not just some abstract thing where you watch some video and then it's like all right well go now go take whatever we taught you and apply it to whatever band you're working on mm -hmm. it was totally abstract that way like with this you can actually work on the stuff that uh that you're getting taught on the actual song and tracks that you're getting taught it so that it's not abstract. It's a real thing. Um, and I know for a lot of people who only work with local bands, the opportunity to have this kind of level of information with tracks from an artist like Ishan is not, it's not a normal thing. So there's that. We're also doing a mix competition with those tracks where uh, whoever wins it and it's voted on by the community, but whoever wins it is getting this sick prize package with like an amp from MLC uh, Telefunken, DI Box, uh, Mike from Roswell Pro Audio, 
IK multimedia speakers, like a $250 Bogren digital voucher, like all kinds of stuff. Um, and then we have a bunch of bonus courses that come with it, like uh, editing drums and Cubase Reaper and Pro Tools, as well as the supercharger courses for Pro Tools and Reaper for, you know, so people can get better at using their own DAWs. Like, yeah, it's not just the course itself. And there's, yeah, in addition to the 35 hours of video, there's also a workbook we put together for it because 35 hours is a lot. And <laughs> kind of need a guide to go with it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a private community for it as well where Jens will be interacting, um, URM stuff will be interacting. So like it's not just it's not just you on your own watching videos like in the dark. Like there's a whole community of people supporting you and there to answer questions and Jens will also be there to answer questions. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of stuff. Since you're one of the few people that would actually have the answer to this, not everyone that listens to this particular podcast is as into metal or heavier music as I am, but there are a lot of people. There's a pretty wide variety of, of different musicians that listen to this because it's generally more just guitar and gear focused. Um, how much crossover would you say that this course would have for somebody maybe trying to do blues or more just general hard rock or even pop? Do you think that they would get a lot of stuff out of this as well? Yes, uh, because, because first of all, artist Ishan is so diverse and the song is so diverse that uh, it's not just screaming vocals. So there's clean vocals that involve tons of layers of harmonies uh, there's acoustic guitar on it. There's several different kinds of analog, uh, keyboards, organs. There's the drums are mostly natural drums, uh, recorded in an incredible room and the techniques used for all this stuff, uh, they carry over, uh, mm -hmm. the, it's the level of detail and how to go about these things. Like the genre you're in that your taste will dictate what you do there, but knowing how to tune a drum uh, to get it to sound the way you want it to sound, mm -hmm. that is not a genre thing. That's just a skill thing. Right. Um, you know, knowing how to mic an acoustic guitar properly for a certain type of sound, that is, that's not a genre thing. And same with dialing distorted guitars that like, yeah. So distorted guitars are mostly a metal thing, but they're also in country. They're also in soundtracks. You hear them in pop. Like it's like these elements are not specific to just metal and knowing how to mic a cabinet properly. Like if you're going to be micing guitars, like it doesn't matter if you, uh, if you learn how to mic properly from a metal person or a blues person. In fact, uh, learning how to do it from a metal person is probably good because of the level, the, level of skill required to be able to uh produce metal so it, really it's just skills yeah at the end of the day so yes i think that anyone who wants to get good at production um and mixing will get a lot from this and again because it's the artist and the song are not just one-sided it's not just you know it's not black metal with screaming and distortion guitars the whole way through and blast beats the entire time. Like, it's a very diverse song. Very cool. Very cool. 
Well, hey, we are approaching the end of the main episode here, and I do have a few classic questions I like to wrap this show up with. But before I do, I like to give the guests the opportunity to kind of take the floor, you know, shout out their grandma, plug anything they want to plug, say hi to anybody they want to say hi to. You know, you've got a couple thousand people tuning in and you've got their ear right now. So you can say whatever message you want to get out into the world. The floor is yours. All right. So um, first of all, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. And thank you for listening. Uh, The course I was just talking about is nailthemix.com slash Yen's course. That's J-E-N-S. If you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram, A.L. Levy, URM Audio. My band is at Doth Official. And uh, I would say that if you want to get better at anything to do with metal guitar, production, mixing, go to URM.academy and also go to RiffHard.com. All right. That's what I got. I like it. I like it. All right. First question, and I'm going to be very curious to hear what you have to say about this. Okay. What is your favorite boss pedal? Octaver. Oh, fast. Right there with it. Do you like the OC2 or do you like one of the more new, the newer ones? The OG, the brown the one. Yep. It's a great pedal. I just yeah. got I just got an OG here a few years ago and every time I plug it in, it brings a smile to my face. How do you use it? Um, well, you got to be careful because... <laughs> yes. You got to be careful because the tracking on it like it forces you to to play to be very selective with what you're going to play. You can't just throw it on and just do anything. So I use it in to like make parts that just need to sound bigger, mm-hmm. bigger. But they always have to be single note parts. So yes. <laughs> like I just I use it for drama, a drama and epic size basically. I like it. The and it just it sounds different than just doing that with a bass guitar like it's not it has its own sound it's like this distorted synth almost like it sounds like a distorted synth like muse use it a lot Mm -hmm. like when they go into these like super low like heavy for muse but like these big sounding riffs lots of times the reason his guitar sounds so big is there's an octaver on it um like it's just this big awesome not quite, not traditional distorted guitar sound. So, so I just like it. Yeah, I like it too. But and the tracking, the tracking on it is what makes it fun. I know a lot of people will criticize not just the OC2, but a lot of a lot of octave pedals for the tracking not being totally accurate. And I do understand that. But also, I think learning to play with that is part of the fun. Uh, you got you do got to be careful. Um, but I think sometimes those weird little moments are what makes those octave pedals a good time. So, well, any gear that's true for any gear, you, you gotta work with what you gotta work within the parameters of what your gear can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or try to break it and make it do new things. It's not supposed to do. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Final question. This is the one that gets, gets a little bit controversial from time to time, but we'll see where it goes here. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Definitely not pineapple. Oh, um, good man. Good man. I knew cheese. I liked you. Yeah. Just cheese? Yeah, I feel like toppings take away from it. So uh, really well done pizza, like where the crust and the sauce and the cheese are just right. Mm-hmm. Like you don't need more than that. Uh-huh. And toppings are a distraction. I Not I, to say I don't like them, but like the best pizzas I've ever had 
and I've had them in lots of places are plain. And uh, if if you have a plain pizza and you feel like it's not enough, that means that the pizza itself is not good quality. I I a cheese slice if it's available, and I know there's like different pizzerias that do different styles. But if I'm looking at like a New York style pizza and I, I sample the cheese slice first to judge the pizzeria, like, can you do this right? Correct. You know, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. Mm-hmm. Everything else beyond that is decoration. That's right. And I'm, I'm fine with the decoration. I, I usually yeah, don't totally. just get a cheese slice, but when I'm sampling a new place, I get the cheese slice and, and decide from there. You and Misha, Sarah, share uh, Misha Mansour, Sarah, the exact, uh, Exact same opinion on pizza. Right well, there. he's a man of fine taste. So I'm cool with that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for hanging out. This was a really good time, and I'm excited to see what kind of shenanigans we can drum up on Patreon. Awesome, man. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, dude. Thank you for coming on. This was really fun. Glad it finally happened. For so, sure. For IL, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. Alrighty, folks, there you go. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget to check out that course in the show notes. Please check it out. I do not think this is an opportunity that anybody interested in producing or recording music should miss. This is really, really cool. Thank you to Al for putting it together and the whole URM team. And thank you to him for coming on and sharing this story. And he also gets a little weird with it over on Patreon. We get over there. We talk about some more music stuff. We talk about aliens, of course and dive into a little bit of strangeness. So if you'd like to support the show and you'd like to get additional episodes beamed to your ears, that is the place to go. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that does that. It is a massive help. I cannot tell you how important that really is. It is a huge help to me. So thank you all so much for that. Thank you for everything. And don't forget that I am at GearFest this week, so I will be a little bit out of pocket. So if you message me and I don't get back to you or you email me and I'm a little slow to respond, I'll be in the trenches trying to make as much stuff as I physically can and get it out there for you. So look for more podcasts, look for some video stuff, stay glued to the socials. I will be bringing you whatever I find that might be interesting. So thank you all so much. I will talk to you next time. Have a good one. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. 
Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstory as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. 